If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. We will begin in verse 43. Hear now the Word of the Lord. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of his death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for this glorious morning where we can gather together as your people as the redeemed, to set our eyes upon Christ, to look to Him as our only Savior. Father, I pray now as we turn to the Word and we hear the preached Word, that You would come and meet with Your people through the preaching of the Word, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truths that lie therein. And Father, I pray that You would conform Your people to the image of Christ. Father, if there are those here who have clung to a superficial faith, or those who do not know you at all, Lord, I ask that you would open their eyes today, that you would help them to see Jesus today for who he truly is, and that you would grant them faith and that they would come to you through Christ. So, Father, would you come and do what only you can do? Through the power of your Spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you again. Well, as we continue to work through the Gospel of John, I want to start our time off this morning by asking you to contemplate a simple question. It is a question that ought to be easy to answer, but at the same time, it should cause us to at least pause and think to see if the obvious answer is true. And the question is this, what is the most important thing in your life? What is it that for you takes priority above everything else? Is it your family? Is it your husband or your wife? Is it your kids? Is it your health? Is it your career or your church? Your recreation? Your hobbies? Or your sports team. I hear there's a game tonight. 
And as big of a deal as that is, I certainly hope that's not how you would answer this question. What is it then? Now this is one of those questions where we all know that the Sunday school answer is the right answer. The answer ought to be Christ. The answer ought to be Jesus. Our faith and trust in Him and Him alone. Nothing ought to supersede that. That is the right answer. We know that. The Bible makes that clear. Jesus even made that clear. He is even to exceed our love and devotion to our own families. Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 10. He said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's no ambiguity as to what the answer ought to be. The real question is, is that a reality in your life? There's nothing more important in our lives than our faith. And for that reason, we ought to be sure that our faith is a genuine faith. Is it a faith that is resting and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in Him alone? Or is it superficial in nature? Today we're going to look at a beautiful passage about faith. A passage that examines the superficial faith of an entire people group but then sheds light on a story of of true faith that develops in a singular father who becomes an exception to those who were around him. And we're going to see Christ push him in a desperate moment in order for him to see and understand what is most important in life. Now, I want to give you a little disclaimer before we jump into this section As most of you know, I preach out of the English Standard Version, the ESV, which I personally love. It is a fantastic version of the Bible. There's lots of good versions of the Bible. Translation is a tricky process, and there there is no perfect version, which is why you've often seen me bring in other good translations that I think may have done a better job on this verse or that verse. However, I usually try to keep that to a minimum, and typically because the ESV has done a fine job. But unfortunately, in this particular story, for whatever reason, there were a number of places where I think the ESV's choice of wording was slightly off. And it's places where they departed from most of the other translations. So I'm going to be pointing those out a little more than I usually would today, not because I'm trying to present myself as some kind of language expert here to correct the ESV by any means, but because the majority of scholarship and translators have gone a different direction for a reason. And it helps to see and understand the beauty of this passage if we see where those differences are. These are not big differences. They're small, but they matter. And and this is a beautiful passage, and I want you to see it in the way that the, the writer, John, intended it. So there's an interesting contrast in this passage. It's a contrast of faith, and that's going to serve as our outline today. First, we're going to look at the superficial faith of the Galileans, and then we will look at the exception among them. We will see the story of this desperate father that ends in a faith that truly believes. And as we look at this, I want us to understand not only the priority of faith, but the nature of true saving faith. There is a kind of faith out there, every bit as prevalent then as it is now, 
maybe even more so now, that is a form of faith to be sure, but it is superficial at its core. It's not the kind of faith that produces true worship in the heart of a believer. It's not the kind of faith that results in what God the Father is seeking after, which is those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is the kind of faith that is self-serving and shallow. It is the kind of faith that is entitled and assumes Christ's Christ rather than trust in Christ. And very often it's not focused upon the person of God, but only upon the hand of God. And we need to understand the difference because these differences have eternal ramifications. Well, in this short little section that we have before us, we will see a contrast that helps us understand what I'm talking about. So let's start by looking at the superficial faith of the Galileans. Look with me, starting in verse 43. It says, After the two days he departed for Galilee. Now, if we remember, Jesus and his disciples have been on a, on a journey back from Jerusalem to rural Judea, and from there they sat out to head home to Galilee. Now, the journey began back in verse 3, where it says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. But on the way to Galilee, verse 4 came along and told us that Christ had to pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment to make, which, of course, was his appointment with a woman at the well that began with a conversation and ended with a Samaritan revival. It was there that the Samaritans had requested that he stay with them because they had recognized that he was indeed the Savior of the world. So verse 40 tells us that Jesus stayed with them for two days, and during that time, many came to believe. So when it says, after the two days he departed for Galilee, it is referencing the two days that he spent with the Samaritans. But now look at verse 44. It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So as John is, is reporting about his arrival in Galilee and the treatment he received upon arrival, he prefaces it with saying that, this saying that Jesus was known for, which was, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This was a saying that Jesus had espoused several times in the other Gospels. He said it in Matthew 13, in Mark chapter 6, and in Luke chapter 4. And in every one of those instances, it's very clear why he said this. It was tied to his hometown, which was Nazareth. That was the hometown in which he was raised. And it speaks of the day that he was rejected by them, by the Nazareth people. Rather than accepting his testimony that he is the Christ, that he is the one who fulfills the Messianic prophecies as of Isaiah as he read to them, the townspeople grumbled against him, saying, Is this not just the carpenter? Isn't this just the son of Joseph and Mary? Don't we know his, his brothers and his sisters, his family? And despite all the miracles that they had seen him perform, and despite the unparalleled wisdom of his teachings that they had heard, they rejected him. They did not see him for who he truly is. They didn't deny his wisdom or his miracles. They couldn't. Those things were undeniable. 
But they didn't draw the obvious conclusion those things were meant to point to with regard to who he is. And as a result, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Well, in those instances, it's very clear what's going on and how that saying applies. However, here in our passage, a very similar thought is brought out without the same contextual clarity. Especially when you consider that he's leaving Samaria, which is not his home country or town, so we know he's not talking about that, and he's heading to Galilee, which is his home country, but verse 45 says they welcomed him. It doesn't seem like they dishonored him. So how are we, how are we to make sense of this? Why is this verse here? What's, what's going on? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that John is very clearly saying that Jesus is intentionally going to a place where he is not honored. Look at what it says. After the two, two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. He's going on purpose. Now, the, the word there that is translated hometown can also mean home country or homeland. And it is, in fact, a reference to Galilee, where he's heading. He is intentionally walking right into a place that does not honor him. The question is, why would he do that? Why not just stay in Samaria where they had drawn the right conclusions about who he is and labor among them? There they had honored him as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Why not stay? Why then go to a place where he knows he's not honored? The answer is because it was part of his mission. Remember, he came to accomplish his father's Will And it was his Father's will that he would go to those who would not receive him. John made this clear in the prologue at the very beginning in John 1.10. He said, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. A massive part of what Jesus was doing was going to a place and to a people where he knew he would be rejected where he knew he wouldn't be honored. A rejection that would eventually culminate with finality upon the cross. The very cross that would ironically be our salvation. But sadly, that took place among his own people, in his own home country. But it was part of the mission. Well, if that's the case, if that's what John is saying here, then what do we make of verse 45? Because it says they welcomed him. That doesn't look like dishonor. It looks like honor. Well, we have to read carefully here. Because John, as he often does, is signaling back to something he already said. Look at at verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Why? For what reason did they welcome him? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So if you remember, this whole journey back to Galilee began as a return trip from celebrating the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And John is saying these Galileans welcomed him because they were there too and they saw what he did. Well, what did he do? Well, that was back in chapter 2, verse 23. 
said this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when he saw the signs that he was doing. Well, that sounds good, except for verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, the people who were welcoming Jesus back to Galilee are among the same people who superficially believed in him at the feast. They believed in Jesus as a miracle worker or a prophet. They saw what he could do and they wanted in on that. This was not at all genuine faith. And for that reason, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. He did not respond to their so-called belief because it wasn't genuine. Nor was this a genuine reception. In fact, the word here that John used for welcome is a Greek word, dekomai, which is, typically means received. And we know that all through this gospel, John uses the idea of receiving Christ or of receiving his words. It is a major theme through the gospel of John. In fact, John uses the word received 46 times in the gospel. And it began in the prologue. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be the children of God. But very intentionally here, John uses a completely different word. Usually he's using the Greek word lumbano. This is dekomai, which is why they translated it as welcome, so you could see that it was different. This is the only time in the entire gospel that John uses this word, one time, and he's doing it to signal that this is a superficial reception that he was receiving at Galilee. This was not honor. They did not honor him for who he is. They did not believe that he is the Messiah. They did not believe that he is the Savior of the world. They did not believe that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Despite the fact that John the Baptist had already announced him as such to the Jews. Despite his miracle at Cana. Despite his cleansing the temple and the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. And despite the many signs he performed in Jerusalem, which they saw, still they saw him as merely a prophet or a miracle worker, but not the Christ, not the Savior of the world. They did not receive him for who he is, but they welcomed him for what he can do. They wanted to take from him. They did not want to give him the honor and worship that he rightly deserves. Now contrast that with where Jesus had just come from. He had just been among the half-breed Samaritans who witnessed no miracles. Yes, Jesus displayed his omniscience to the woman, but beyond that there is not a single mention of performing any signs. And in fact, according to verse 42, the Samaritans' faith was rooted in what they heard from Jesus. They said, For we have heard for ourselves and believed. They believed in Him. And it says they knew that He was indeed the Savior of the world. And they had implored Him to stay with them, not because of what He can do, but because of who He is. What a massive contrast. And this should be a warning 
to us all to examine our own hearts as to why we have come to Christ, why we have received Christ, why we haven't even come to church. If we have received Christ in our lives merely for selfish gain, merely because we see Him as a means to an end by which we may have something added to our lives, whether it be health or wealth or even just well-being, then we have a superficial faith. If you have come to Christ merely because you want peace, or because you want to get clean, or because you want a better family, or because you want a better marriage, or because you want a place to belong to, or because you want a community around you, then you are missing it. Can Christ provide those things? Absolutely He can. Does He promise to? No. No, He doesn't. Are those good motivations for coming to Him? No, they're not. Not at all. No, true faith in Christ understands that He is the Lord of glory. That He is worthy of all worship. That He is worthy of your very life. And that we have offended Him with our sin and we need His forgiveness. And that can only be found in Him. That is true faith. But that's not what's going on in Galilee. It was in Samaria, but not in Galilee. But there is an exception. There's an exception that develops in this father. So let's look now at this story of this official that comes to Jesus. Look at verse 46. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. So Jesus is back in Galilee now. And he has gone to Cana. And John specifically notes that this was the place where he had made water into wine, where he had performed his first sign back in chapter 2. John is doing this on purpose. This is uh, what is called an inclusio. It's where you bookend a certain section with the same idea. And this story really marks the close of the the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is the end of of the beginning of sorts. From here on out, from chapter 5 onward, everything changes. The Jewish opposition to Christ comes on with severity, and it comes on quick. Already in chapter 5, they are ready to kill Him. And that is what John has been doing in this first section. He's been setting up what is coming. He has established the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Who He is and what He can do has been put on display. His popularity is rising. And He is ironically seen for who He is, not by the Jews, but by the rejected Samaritans. And now He's transitioning back to His homeland and to His people where the opposition is about to really begin and it won't let up until the cross. But before we get into all of that, John lets out some hope here for the Jews, showing that despite this mass of unbelief, there is a remnant. And one can move from having a false belief in Christ to having a true belief in Christ, to having a faith that truly believes. So he says at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, who is this official? What do we... What do we know about him? Well, the truth is, not much. 
But there are a few clues here that give us information about who this guy is. Now, some have tried to say that this is John's version of the Roman centurion. If you remember that story from some of the synoptic gospels, um, who had come to Christ, but it's not. The details and the timing simply do not line up. And this was not a Gentile. This was a Jew. And that becomes very clear when Jesus lumps him in with the other sign-seeking Jews here in a minute. But we do know from the word that is used here, that's translated official, this was somebody who was in the service of a king. Most translators render this as royal official to signify that, not just official. He was not just any old official, but he was one who served a king. And specifically, the only king that could possibly be at the time was King Herod Antipas. Now, as you may know, King Herod was a wicked ruler. He was the one that Jesus had publicly called a fox in Luke 13. He had divorced his wife. He had married his half-brother's sister, or his half-brother's wife, excuse me. And he was the only one who... Or he was the one who eventually beheaded John the Baptist at the request of his stepdaughter, who was dancing for him. This was not a good dude at all. Being in his service would have provided no special favors for this guy. No special favors with Christ, and and certainly no special favors with the other Jews. Likely the opposite. This is somebody, a good Jew, would likely not want to associate with because he was associated with Herod. But he was stationed at Capernaum, and his son was ill to the point of death. And he had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the miracles that were performed by him in Jerusalem, and now he's heard that he is back in Galilee. Look at verse verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he hears about Jesus, he hears he's back, and he makes the trek up to Cana to plead with him to come heal his son. Now you need to understand the the desperation of this situation. This is, in fact, a desperate man who does not want to lose his child. Now, I can tell you personally, I've only ever been in the place where I thought I might lose my child one time. And I can tell you this, the desperation that you feel in a moment like that is absolutely unparalleled. Many of you have been there. Some of you, I know, have even lost a child. You know the angst and the pain that a man may be feeling in a moment like this. There is... There is nothing that compares. The prospect of losing a child creates an indescribable dread and desperation in the heart of a person. And this is a desperate man. This is a serious situation, and this is a matter of life and death. So in that desperation, he makes the trip. The trip from Caperna to Cana. It was about 20 miles And when he gets there, he finds Jesus and he begs him to come down and heal his son. The word asks there is not a good translation at all. Every other version picks up the intensity of this situation and of this word with words like implored or pleaded or besought or begged. 
He is not issuing a simple request here. He didn't travel 20 miles to simply ask. He is imploring, please come down. And for that reason, verse 48 is really quite surprising. Look how Jesus replies. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That is not how one would expect the compassionate Savior to respond in a moment like this. Even though he is dealing with a desperate father, he issues a rebuke here. What are we, what are we to make of this? Why, why this reply? Well, it's important to note that when he says you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe that that you there is in the plural. And most translations render this as you people to make it really clear in English. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you people will not believe. Yes, Jesus is replying to this father and speaking to him, but in so doing, he addresses the whole group. What group? The Galileans, who were only interested in him for what he could do rather than who he was. And this father had fallen prey to the same mindset. He was not interested in Jesus for who he is. He has come to Christ for only one reason. He heard he can work miracles, and he needs a miracle for his boy. And while that is certainly an understandable desire, it is a misguided and wrong reason to come to Christ. At this point, he has the same superficial faith as those who witnessed the signs in Jerusalem. Jesus is just a miracle worker, or perhaps a prophet. He is someone God is working through, but He is not God. He is not the Word made flesh. He is not the Messianic Son of God come to save the world. Jesus had just come from Samaria, where a people who were not the covenant people of God had believed, just based upon His Word, not having seen any miracles, and now He is standing among His own people who do not believe, having seen many. You see, the problem is not with the miracles. It's not even that he's seeking a miracle. It's not wrong to seek God for healing. It's that he is doing so under the pretense of a false understanding of who Christ is. With no interest in anything other than what he could give him. And so Christ issues a rebuke. Why? It's not because he's not sensitive to the situation. But he does so in love to this man and to his son. And those who were there observing as well. He wants them all to understand that there are actually more important matters than matters of life and death. And those are matters of eternal life and eternal death. Knowing God and understanding the gospel Understanding and submitting to the Lordship of Christ is more important than prolonging your physical life or even prolonging your child's physical life. It would be better to have a child die young who knew and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ 
than to have them live a long, so-called successful life, dying peacefully in their beds when they are old, when all the while they had rejected him. Because life is a vapor, but eternity is forever. You see, Jesus could, could simply just acquiesce to this father's request, heal the boy in the way the father is suggesting, and move on. But to do so would not help this father nor his family see the greater issue. They would be overjoyed to have their son healthy. They would remember that great man who came along and healed him, and they would move on with life. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he rebukes a desperate father to get him thinking. And the father, hearing this rebuke, he persists. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come, come down before my child dies. And the father does not acknowledge what Jesus said, but he issues a second, very respectful request. And he changes from speaking of his son to speaking of his child. And this is a term of affection. The welfare of this man's child is the only thing on his mind. For this father, this was not just a desire to see the miraculous. This was not theoretical for him like it was for many others who were there. This was real. There is a a reality to what he's experiencing. But there is a change in his ask. And many commentators note that this second request has almost taken the form of a prayer. Kyrie, Lord, sir, come down before my child dies. He's pleading. And Jesus answers that question, not in the way he requested, but in such a way so as to give him much more than what he requested. He actually tests him here. Look what he says in verse 50. Jesus says, Go, your son will live. Literally, in the original language, it says, Go, your son lives. That's the way the New American Standard and many others have translated. And the reason that tiny distinction is important is because this is not a, this is not a word of prophecy here. Jesus is not speaking about what will happen in the future. This is a word of power. By those very words, power went out from Christ and restored that boy to complete health in that very moment. Jesus answered his request, but not in the way he was requesting. He did not come down. He just spoke a word. This was not something achievable by some mere miracle worker. This sign says much more about who he is than if he were to go down and lay hands and just pray over the boy. He has control over this world no matter where he is. But this intentionally put the father in a tough position. Jesus has just pushed him into a corner here on purpose where he has got to make a decision. Either I will believe this man in what he just said, I will take him at his word, or... I will continue to implore him to come down because I have got to know for sure that my child is okay. This is not an easy situation. This is a desperate father. He could not pick up the phone and call his wife and verify that everything was okay. 
There's no way to know. And he had a 20-mile journey back to Capernaum, which would take him more than a day to get there without having confirmed anything of what he just heard. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is pushing him into a place where he has got to believe differently than the Galileans around him, who rested everything on what they had seen. This was a double act of mercy here. And look what the Father does. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. See, in mercy, Jesus healed his son, but he did so in a way that got to the greater issue. So the man departs, not having seen anything at all. He didn't know, but he believed, and he went on his way. And then look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. These were actually his slaves that have met him. The word here is doulos. It's always slaves. They're not mere servants. They belong to his household. And they meet him on his way because something had happened the day before. The boy was healed. And they went to go find the father and to bring him this good news. And when they found him, they told him that his son was recovering. Now, I'm sorry to take one more issue with the ESV, but they actually said to him is that his boy lives. The exact same words. They providentially use the exact same word that Christ spoke. He said, go, your son lives. And they came and reported that his son lives. I would imagine when they said that, alarm bells were going off in that man's head as he heard the exact words of Christ that he had been rolling over in his head for hours upon hours on his journey back to Capernaum. And now those words are coming out of the mouths of his own slaves, confirming what he had put his faith in. And I imagine, in my mind's eye, as I'm, as I'm picturing this scene, I think he asks this follow-up question, both with tears of joy in his eyes and a smile on his face because he already knows the answer. Look at 52. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and all of his household. And that word of power went out. The very moment it was done. The fever was gone and the boy was better. Notice the final response to all this. Note the emphasis that John puts here. And he says, And he himself believed. And all of his household For this man, there has been a progression of faith throughout this whole story. He came to Jesus with a type of faith, but it was a superficial faith. Not trusting in who he is, but only caring about what he can do. When he left Jesus, his faith had changed. It was different than the rest of the Jews around him. He believed his word, sight unseen. 
But when everything was confirmed to him, it says one more time that he himself believed. And notice this time there's no object to what he believed. It's not that he believed in the word or he believed in the miracles. No, he himself believed. Believed what? He believed in Jesus. He believed like the Samaritans that He is the Christ, that He is the Savior of the world, that this was in fact the long-awaited for Messiah that He had just encountered. And we see the evidence of His faith because of this one little line, and all of His household. Just like the Samaritan woman, He could not keep this good news to Himself, but He had to share it. And in the first century, a household would include, of course, a family, one's wife and children, but it would also include one's servants and slaves and any other extended family members that might live with someone, with this man. And given his high position, it's very likely that that was a lot of people. And this was both his privilege and his obligation to take what he now believed, what he now knew to be true to his family and to his household as the patriarch of this home. It was his responsibility to instruct his family and those under his care in matters of faith and practice. And it appears he was very faithful to carry that out. And that's not any different in the 21st century than it was in the 1st century. Men, God has entrusted you to be the shepherds of your homes. You will set the tone for your family's faith in practice. And it should be all of our desires, not that we ourselves alone would believe this beautiful gospel, but that our entire households would believe the gospel of grace and that Christ would rule over our homes. You need to both share and model Christ in your home. God did not entrust you with a family merely for your own pleasure or just to keep you company, but in order that you may steward them for His glory, that you may teach them of His person and His works and His ways, in order that your greatest heritage to your children may be a heritage of faith. We saw with the Samaritan woman that true faith impacts your willingness to share with others and overcomes the shame of our past. And here we see that true faith also impacts your conduct in the way you order your home. By all appearances, from the little we have here, it seems that was exactly true for this man. He believed, and so did his entire household. And look how John closes out this section in verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. When John calls this the second sign here, he's not saying that he hadn't done any other signs He performed many in Jerusalem in chapter 2. We already saw that. But this was the second one that he had performed in Galilee, and it is the second one that John details for us. Remember, John gives us seven main signs that he walks through in this gospel, picking up it throughout his writing purposes. And the seventh, of course, being the greatest of all, which was the resurrection. And that's where all of this is leading. That's where these signs are leading, demonstrating who this man really is. But these two Galilean signs mark the end of this section. It was the end of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But as we conclude, I want us to note that this man, the story of the royal official, 
served both as a source of hope and as a source of rebuke to the Jews at the same time. Hope in that it demonstrated that someone's faith can move from being superficial to somewhat muddy, but being there, to being confirmed and solidified and strong. There was a development here in this man's faith. And very often, when God is drawing people to Himself, He takes them through a process. It's not always a cut-and-dry Damascus Road experience. Sometimes it is, and that's beautiful, but oftentimes it is not. I know many of you cannot say, you cannot exactly pinpoint the moment in which you were born again because you look back and you see that God had taken you through a process. So sometimes, was I born again there? Or was this just sanctification? What's going on? Now, yes, regeneration does take place in a moment in time, but very often God uses drawn-out means to bring that about. But that should be an encouragement to us that just because someone is engaged in a superficial faith, a faith that is grounded upon error, does not mean that God cannot use that to bring them to a place of standing on solid ground. If you have loved ones who are in aberrant movements or bought into things like the prosperity gospel, do not write them off. Pray for them. God can and often does use situations like that to draw His people to Himself, where their faith transitions from being superficial and upon His hand to being firmly rooted in upon His person. There is always hope. But there, this was also a source of rebuke. It was a rebuke to those who had become too familiar with Jesus. So familiar that they were blinded to the truth and blinded to their own needs. They did not honor Christ for who He really was, but only wanted the benefit of being associated with Him. Here, these are Jews who seek to live by the law of God, but they cannot even see their own Messiah and their need for Him. Meanwhile, here is a man who is associated with a law-breaking, despicable, low-life king who gets it, who found true faith. It would be no different than if some high-up leftist staff member of our current president walked in these doors and found Christ. Meanwhile, some of us who hear the gospel every week are bored by him. Do not think that the danger of overfamiliarity is no longer present today. It is. And it is especially present for those of you who grow up in the church. Young people, I am talking to you. There is a danger in growing up in a church that constantly proclaims the gospel and constantly preaches to you the word. It's a double edged sword. It's the greatest blessing you could ever have as a child to have parents parents who fear the Lord and take you to be a part of a church who preaches the Word. But it's also one of the greatest dangers. Because if you treat Christ as commonplace and you maintain a superficial faith, then judgment for you will be worse than had you never known. This is why Jesus denounced the city of Capernaum later on. 
Because they had him there. They heard his teachings. They heard his preaching. They saw the signs and they still did not believe. And Jesus says as a result of that, the day of judgment will be more tolerable for cities like Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But Christ offers hope to all. You do not have to stay in a place of superficial faith. Christ died for that sin too. But you cannot get into the kingdom of God just by being associated with the church or having Christian parents. You have got to trust Christ for yourself. You trust in His death to pay the penalty of your sin in His resurrection, proving that He is in fact God and that He has overcome the grave. You trust in Him. You make Him your own. You profess your own faith. You get baptized and join the people of God. Do not rely on a mere association to Christianity. It will not save you. Only Christ will save you. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that Your mercy and Your grace knows no bounds. Thank You that Christ has come for all kinds of people. Thank You, Father, that we have opened before us access to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for those here who have not availed themselves of that access, that you would open their eyes to truth, that you would grant them faith, that they would trust upon you this day, that they would trust upon your Son and his work on the cross and his resurrection, and that they would be born again, that you would grant them the new birth, that they would walk out of here a new creature in Christ Jesus this day. Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you most of all for your Son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.